Today I'm joined once again by the magnificent Dr. Michael Martin. Michael is a philosopher, a theologian, a poet, musician, songwriter, editor, and a biodynamic farmer. He's the editor of the journal Jesus the Imagination and director of the Center for Sociological Studies, which is a great place to check out his wonderful blog posts and his articles. Today we'll be looking at his sublime new book, Sophia in Exile. So just uh, first of all, then, can you tell us a little bit about the title and the theme, Michael, and what does it mean? to say that Sophia has been in exile? Well, well, the idea comes from, from the Gnostic myth of Sophia being in exile, you know, and, uh, and uh, it has so many different implications um, that I touch on in the book. You know, for one thing, that wisdom uh, or chokmah in, in Hebrew was actually literally sent into exile at the at the uh, reforms of King Josiah and which is when some some of the Israelites or Jews left left the Holy Land and went to North Africa and took their veneration of wisdom with them which is where the the wisdom books were written for instance right mm -hmm. and so um so that's kind of that's that's where I started with my the idea of this book, it, and and plus I've always, or I shouldn't say always, but often said that, you know, beside this experience of the sophiological, we uh, it, it feels like Sophia is an exile. You know, it's like the, the wisdom of God is an exile, but it's actually we're the ones who are in exile. Mm -hmm. You know, and. It's when we kind of uh, become aware of or attentive to the sophiological in the world that Sophia, in a way, wakes up, even though Sophia is not the one who's asleep. <laughs> we are, right? So, so in, in, uh, in, in the book, I uh, point to the Gnostic Hymn of the Pearls and a kind of an example of this. Uh, the Hymn of the Pearls is this great story, great fairy tale that's uh, appended to some versions of the Gospel of St. Thomas. And in the story, this, this boy is sent from his father into Egypt. And he's supposed to retrieve a pearl that's being guarded by a dragon. But, you know, he, when he leaves, he, he's given the, the warning, don't, don't eat the food of the Egyptians. And of course, he eats the food of the Egyptians and forgets who, why he was sent and why he's there. And, and in fact, David Bentley Hart's new book coming out probably next month, if not this month, uh, called Kinogaya is actually based on the, the Hymn of the Pearl. So, so I was really glad when I, when I read that advance copy of his book because I started with the same story in my, in my book. Um, but so, so that's where the idea of Sophia in Exile came from. And all the other chapters uh, follow a similar theme, whether it's uh, the ways we have become exiled from, from Sophia and exiled from God over the centuries, uh, but also of some figures and who uh, 
pointed a way back to to that understanding and it's like Thomas Traherne and Eleanor Fargin, for instance. So, so that, that, that was the idea behind it. Plastic, yeah. And um, then I think a powerful symbol that you evoke in the book is the fire at Notre Dame. How does that serve as a symbol for what you're writing about then in the book? Well, yeah. <laughs> that was, it's a powerful image, right? And I'll never, I mean, I'll never forget that day I was teaching at a local liberal arts college and one of my colleagues came out into the hallway and said, come here. And she brought me into her office and showed me she was watching the burning of Notre Dame in real time. And so, I mean, in a way, so it was, what year was that, 2018? Was it 2018 that happened? Sure. Uh, but man, and the church has been basically in that condition ever since, you know? Uh, you know, I think it was a, it was a, fitting metaphor for that there's a crisis in the church and uh that the burning of notre dame to me seemed uh representative that it's like and i i compare it to uh saint francis when he heard christ tell him to rebuild my church and francis thought he meant saint damiano and but god had other things in mind um and i i mean i think I think the church is at a crisis point right now. It's you know it it it's uh it's to it's to be rebuilt or just die completely. I think so. I think that, so that that's part of what inspired that. And you know I'm, I'm been really uh, attentive to the story of Saint Francis ever since then. You know, actually my whole life, but it, but especially since the burning of Notre Dame. It's really lived with me, you know, you know, and I tell the story in the introduction that when uh, St. Francis and his companions went to, to Rome and the cardinals said, well, what will be the order, of, what will be the rule of your order? And he lifted up the book of the Gospels and they said, no, it's too hard. People tried it already, <laughs> you, <laughs> do you know, and I think that's still the case. It's still the case. Mm. And um, what then, aside from that destruction of the fire that we're using as a symbol, what have been some of the, the harshest consequences maybe of our loss of Sophia, either within the church or even outside the church in the dominant kind of secularist culture, if you want to call it that? Uh, well, I, I think, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. In fact, when I, when I, when I wrote uh, or when I published uh, transfiguration and the subtitle is notes toward the radical catholic reimagination of everything i almost took the radical catholic reimagination of everything out of the subtitle even though a lot, by that point a lot of people had identified my work with that phrase but that was right around the time the mccarrick thing broke you know, and the you know and you know anybody who's been trying to be catholic for the past 30 years has had to deal with, with that time and time again and the complete ineffectiveness of the hierarchy to do anything about it. You know, it almost seems like an indifference to doing anything about it. You know, so, and I, and I, and I think um, that's part, part of, of what I, why I wrote the book is, you know, do we, can we, can we come to, uh, 
an original participation in this the the Catholic idea, and and for for me more and more the Catholic idea has less and less to do with the clerical orders that seem to me have just there especially over the course of of the the pandemic, uh, kind of indifferent to the plight of common Christians. You know, I mean, people just who who need who need the church and the church hasn't been there for them you know so it's kind of depressing mm -hmm. so so it's kind of a <laughs> it was a it's kind of uh radicalized even more than usual in <laughs> this book yeah and um it's actually something i like about your work generally and maybe even sharpened in this most recent one then is this um desire to reach out for these marginal figures and trends within the Christian tradition itself. And um, I think even the way that you use uh, the Gnostic myths is very orthodox, if, if that's the right way to phrase it. But um, I want to ask you, what is the kind of basic Gnostic mythos? And then why has it resonated with you so much uh, in trying to retrieve this radical Catholic reimagination of everything? Um, well, well, there's... There are so many variations on, on this Gnostic mythos, but the basic idea is, is one of exile and return or forgetfulness and remembering. And like I mentioned with the, with the Hymn of the Pearl, the idea that you know, you've been sent here for, on a mission, but we forget while we're here. What were we sent here for? I mean, I think this is true for everybody. And I actually, uh, for years, I've used that story for uh, one of my philosophy classes and teaching college students. Uh, and because, it, and they relate to it because, you know, they get to college and they forget why they were sent there. You know, they get into partying or whatever else and they don't know who they are anymore. And you, you need a reminder. And uh, so the Gnostic myth is, is really good in that way, but also what I think is really relevant in, in Gnostic mythologies is this idea of the simulacra or that everything we see is, a, is false, it's not reality. And how do we get to the real reality? How do we, how do we connect to that? And where, where is God, right? And I think if you look around at, at, at Western culture right now, it's, it's a Gnostic hell world. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It's not related to any reality, whether you're looking at, um, you know, trans activism or all, all kinds of, uh, the ideas of marriage and what's real. They're all so bizarre and so um, disconnected from reality and from truth that and, and, and the thing is, if you voice any concerns about it, you get canceled, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even make any sense. But yet, yet we live in this in this reality that is non-reality. And so the Gnostic myth, you know, is it, the idea was to have the gnosis or the knowledge that uh, about what is real, right? And and the Gnostic in a myth was really about knowledge about God. Now, now I've never, part, part of one of the Gnostic takes on things is that creation itself is evil, right? Which I don't buy for a second, um, but 
I do buy that the world is evil. And I don't think creation is evil, but I think the world that's available to our perception through filtered through social media or mass media or whatever, politics, is certainly evil and not real. You know, mm -hmm. so, so, so that's part of what attracted me to that, you know, and who's really wonderful at drawing on that mythology in his fiction is uh, Philip K. Dick, you know, who, you know, it's, he's kind of, he's kind of crazy, <laughs> but what makes you think God doesn't talk to crazy people? He, uh, Philip K. Dick, everything he wrote just about was a, was a, a questioning of reality, you know, and how do we know what's true? How do we know our memories are really our memories? How do we know that, how do I know that I, I have, I am a self? Where does my identity come from? Is it something that's projected onto me? Is it something I, I have, I have uh, assumed by, by, you know, the, the, the people I, I, I associate with or, or what is my reality, right? And, and the, the only way to find your reality is to find your reality in God. And, uh, but, but, we, but I don't, you live in a world that dismisses the idea of God and, you know, then you're kind of trapped. You're trapped. And that's, and that's what, uh, for the Gnostic myth, uh, mater the material world is a trap. Hmm. And it makes you forget who you really are. And um, something that you are helping us to remember is the central importance of the divine feminine. I'm going to ask you about why that's vital and how does the, this contrast with, say, that modern transgender ideology, anti-male feminism, and some of these new shibboleths? Um, well, in the, in the Gnostic myth, Sophia is a figure, and it's definitely borrowed or inspired by the Sophia of Proverbs 8, for instance, um, who is God's companion in the creation. But in the Gnostic myth, she's exiled, right? And she forgets who she is. She forgets who she is and she has a son who, who thinks who's the creator God, who thinks he's the creator God because he can create, but he, he's, he's, no, he's also deluded, right? Uh, and then she's she's uh, she's asleep, and then she has to be awakened by Christ to return. Um, <clears throat> and so that's part of the divine feminine. That's uh, that's central to this myth. And uh, so, in going, you know, and then I, here's an ex example. I was actually talking about this with students yesterday. We. Uh, I had them read uh, this essay by Yulia Kristeva. It's called Stabat Mater. And it's a beautiful, beautiful essay. And a part of it is a kind of a psychoanalytic reading of the, the relationship uh, you know, of the Virgin to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and it kind of also traces a, a historiographical tracing of the, uh, how, how that has manifested through different times in church history. But it's combined with a kind of poetic 
meditation on the the evocation of motherhood. And I, when we read this with the students, I said, you know, we, the first thing is talking about, and this is written in 1985, how even then some avant-garde feminists were diminishing the role of mother and of maternity. And Chris David was kind of pushing against that. And I remember said to the students, isn't it just so weird to read this right now when the whole idea of maternity is be almost being erased from, from polite company, right? Where no longer, you can't, you can't say mother, you have to say birthing person. Is that seriously, right? So, and I think uh, the sociological, you know, uh, requires us to acknowledge uh, biblical gendered typology. And require, I mean, because it, it gets reality. <laughs> it's, it's what's real, you know? Um, and, and, you know, we, I think we talked about this before with in, in Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, and he's talking to Sophia, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think if that had been foregrounded as it should have been throughout church history, I think we could have avoided a lot of these troubles with, with uh, the the transgender ad agenda. That I think, in a way, um, the seed for that was planted in in the the minimization of the divine feminine through Christian discourse through two thousand years. You know, with 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 rare. Um, upheavals you know where it, it was brought it back into uh, into awareness like for the 12th century for instance mm -hmm. and then um michael where do we see this divine feminine rightly ordered and then um somebody that's really appealing to me more and more by the day through your influence and through the influence of other people like the um footnotes to plato channel on youtube is mm -hmm. steiner so i was wondering how does steiner for example help us in this respect. How does Steiner do what? Help us uh, in this respect of ret returning to reality and appreciating the proper place for the divine feminine and right. the order of the sexes and so on. Um, how does Steiner? Now, Steiner, his great gift, I think, is in, in practicality. You know, especially in in farming, for instance, but 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 returning to nature and to and attending attending to the rhythms of nature, right? Attending to which is what you're working with as a biodynamic farmer. You're working with with the rhythms of nature. You're working with whether it's the the growth cycle of, of plants or of animals, um, and their relationship to the cosmos. Uh, so. And, and you and that's I mean really farming in particular, it's a heavily feminine activity. Um, most of the animals on a farm are female. You don't have too many male, uh, male because you know because it's because of gender typology. <laughs> you have too many bulls or too many too many boars on on a on a farm. You're you're asking for trouble. Um, so it has to be managed and so there's a so there's the um 
there's a cultivation of the maternal right of that's it's accentuated in a farm the the maternal aspects i mean with especially for us we're on a dairy farm um and uh when you're milking every day, right? You're attentive. You're you're really plugged into that rhythm as well. And that Steiner, and that's one of the things Steiner was, and he, even with beekeeping, he was he was getting away from the kind of industrial what has become the industrial and mechanical way of dealing with animals and and farms and treating treating farms as uh, as spiritual entities as beings, right? That um, are related to the, the farmer and the environment and and the animals that are there. I mean, it's 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 a little cosmos. So so that so that's that's what he that's what he had to offer mm -hmm. to that is to is to reorient us to this. And he and he and he wasn't going. He was in a way you could say he was going backward to a a former understanding of things. But he was also trying to bring in a. a you know, a kind of a modern understanding, a, a modern version of that. It wasn't just doing a, a throwback, mm -hmm. you know, to the midi medieval days. Trying to, you know, how does that work in in a modern context? How can we make those ancient practices work in a modern way? You know, right. yeah, um, that's something that I think comes across in your work too. I've been thinking of that a little bit recently because I've been reading Dawson and Augusto del Nacho, and I think they sort of manage it in their different realms too. So it's, it's interesting to see it come together from these different spheres. But um, another person you mentioned then, Michael, is Terence Malek alongside Phil K. Dick, and you look at how they convey the deep truths of Sophia wisdom. And um, I want to ask you what speaks to you most forcefully in their bodies of work then, and um, if you want to even, since you've covered Dick, if you want to sort of talk about Malek or... Okay, well, I think Malik is, uh, in fact, speaking of the Hymn of the Pearl, his, uh, his film, uh, The Knight of Cups, uses the Hymn of the Pearl as a scaffolding. You know, it's good. So it's all, all of a sudden, it's all over the place. <laughs> you know, uh, but in his film, uh, in his film, uh, The Tree of Life, for instance, it's very sociological. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, and it's sociological because it attends to the rhythms of life. And one of those rhythms of life is death, right? So he doesn't, you know, he, he deals with death in his films as, as part of life. And you see this also in his film, uh, The Thin Red Line, where it's, it's about Guadalcanal, which not a pretty thing, but it's an interesting way he, he shows the kind of, primeval uh, relationship of, of the native islanders to the world and the unreal relationship that the soldiers have to it because they're in, in a bizarre, uh, the, the bizarre condition known as war, right? Which is anti-sophiological. But still, even in that context, beauty can shine through. Right, like the end, if you've ever seen the film, at the end of the film, we hear a soldier in voiceover, and one of the things he says is, uh, uh, "How does he put it? Uh, 
be through my be through my eyes or something like that all things shining right all things shining and this is after this guy endured you know living through hell in Guadalcanal right but all things shining there's still the glory of the Lord's present even then it's and it's a and it's a matter of perception right about uh, if you have to you have to train yourself to see it if you and I shouldn't even and, and not see like in a, in a an acquisitive way but to be present to it to allow yourself to be open to it because when you're open to that it, it's a strange thing it kind of opens something in you at the same time so it's a, there's a reciprocity and that kind of sophiological insight and and Terrence Malick totally gets it gets it in fact for years I was trying to get him copies of my books so I wanted to say you can this is this is kind of like the literary version of what you do in movies because <laughs> he really he seems to nail it for me yeah. I mean, he really gets it mm, I mean and um something that I think we've spoken about before and you've shown great insight into is um the sociological structure of marriage I want to ask you a little more about that as you delve deep, deeper into it in this book and how okay. does it contrast then with some of the modern secularist conceptions on one hand and the more crude church conceptions on the other hand. And um, you mentioned things like Jean-Paul II's Theology of the Body, Too Little Too Late. And would you like to speak a bit to that? Um, so, well, John Paul's Theology of the Body, right, which I think was a day late and a dollar short. Um, I mean, it's a good idea, but it was, you know, way too late um, because um, because through church history, and I grew up in the 1970s going through Catholic school and in the West, I mean, in the entire church, actually, West and East, you know, that... Uh, the clerical order or the, the religious life, we can call it, was held as, as the exemplar. And if you can't live up to the exemplar, you can get married. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is like, you know, it's like, like the consolation prize or something, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I think it was, was totally wrong. Um, but but in, even though in, in actual teaching, everybody knows that that's not how it's supposed to be but that's how it works out or at least how it worked out for for decades and centuries um so so that's that's kind of unfortunate and i think um the church has i mean we we have a, we have a lot to unpack and I, that's why i think uh sociology could be the salvation of the church because it, it offers what's been missing it offers what's been missing and, and it's healthy i mean it's not like it's not a um like a crazy foray into just wild assertions like for, for instance in feminist theology for instance there there's this there was this movement i have been paying attention to what's going on now but uh it was just over the top with its 
sexuality and you know and you know how it could be it, it was feminist but it was feminist at one point at the expense of the masculine right you know god's a woman and on the other hand there is also let's say with say with the feminine or with the woman priesthood it really wasn't uh arguing for a, a a female priesthood as much as it was a gender neutral priesthood right so and we have enough, there's a, we have enough trouble with that kind of thing but there's but 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 i think you know so a lot of these these uh sins or problems we see in the in the culture at large i think were born in in the church you know by in, in unexamined or, or unthought through theology you know mm-hmm. and, and and i especially as far as the feminine goes you know i i quote in there from paul evdokimov who quotes the fathers on uh, you know who, who debated whether or not women had souls, you know, that, that was, that's understandable in the context of uh, late antiquity and Neoplatonic philosophy, you know, uh, in the symposium, you know, uh, women are deemed inferior to men. So love between two men is therefore superior to a love between a man and a woman because men are better right makes perfect sense but i mean is that not where we're at in a way in in the popular culture right now right with the erasure of 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 maternity and of the feminine because it's the it's the the irony of it is is it's women who are being erased and another element i think um, that's most important that you get at in this book brilliantly then, Michael, is the play between Eros and Caritas and uh, bringing them back together and having them reintegrated as God does. I want to ask you about that and how that's expressed in the Song of Songs, and um, which you say is like a Christian Kama Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it is. I mean, you, you know, just... One great experiment is uh, to to read the Song of Songs with with high school kids, mm. and you can read the whole thing in a sitting, right? And the kids are like, "Whoa, <laughs> I had no idea. Why is this in the Bible?" <laughs> you know. And, and the history of the, the history of the Song of Songs is that to not read it as it actually reads mm-hmm. is to is to force some kind of allegorical reading on it. Uh, which is okay, but you know, if you can't read it as as the uh, picturing the sanctity of the love between a man and a woman, and, and that was the that was a not the standard reading in in Catholic or Orthodox circles forever, then that that's that's pathology. I mean, it really, that's you're talking about uh, an unhealthy situation mm-hmm. you know and I, and I that's one of the things and, and i i probably went off too long on on that in the book on the hist- in the history of uh the song of songs and when publishing first you know when uh when uh after the gutenberg revolution 
more versions of the Song of Songs sh showed up in popular editions than any other book. I think 120 and 150 over the course of 75 years that, you know, and people were not just reading it because of the allegory about <laughs> God and the church. <laughs> right. Excellent. And um, then what role do the troubadours help um, in appreciating once again this element of the divine creative play? Yeah. Well, in, in the troubadours, right, so that comes with the miracle of the 12th century you know where saint francis shows up and the the, the veneration of the rosary and the, of our lady shows up uh, gothic architecture shows up light is led into the church and the troubadours were were pursuing um the beloved lady in uh in terms almost like one would approach the virgin, right? But also, you know, and this is what I'm ar I argue in, in the book is that, you know, we, we you know, you, you, if you ever read the book, uh, Love in the Western World by the Denise de Rougemont, which is a horrible book, <laughs> but it's just dreadful. But, and it's dreadful because it, it's really, it's a long uh, attack on Tristan and Isolde, how it's against marriage because they were love, they fell in love for love, not as love as, as marriage is part of your duty to your family, right? Or arranged marriages. And we know, I mean, anybody knows anything about arranged marriages and talk about all the promiscuity that went along with those situations. I mean, the, you know, the crowned heads of Europe, they're they all had arranged marriages and they all fooled around. Um, but here with the troubadours, um, singing of love between a, the, a man and a woman. And that was not bound by the, the, the legal ramifications of marriage and of, of uh, um, alliance making, right? And I, and my thought is that this really has to do with uh, the kind of the nobility's envy of the the lower classes, of the peasantry, who could, you know, they still had to get permission from the Lord, but they could marry for love. You know, it wasn't about alliances between families; they could marry for love, right? And and but it's it's rarely been depicted i mean i i should say uh the history of of love in the western world is has not been about that story you know which and it's it's on it's uh unfortunately you know, like the elites write the history books right you know the elites write the history so they <clears throat> just like and just like the monastics in catholic and orthodox circles the monastics call the shots so when they call the shots they're gonna you better believe they're gonna make uh the, the celibate life look like the prize and married life look like you know <laughs> it's, it's for for people who can't cut it yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately so and um somebody else you mentioned then michael is swedenborg who i think is a fascinating character and you quote a uh, seslav's milos 
and describing it as this anti-Hegelian vaccine, which I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you would you like it's to speak for the, vaccine jokes, right? <laughs> would you like to speak the um his insights maybe and yeah. I, I think what's well, he doesn't really explain what he means <laughs> with his anti-Hegelian vaccine, but what I assume he means is you know the Hegelian dialectic, right? You know. Uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, you know, so you have, you could have the celibate married, what's the synthesis, you know, uh, Swedenborg blows that up, because, you know, he, he, he suggests that not all marriages, but, you know, true marriages do and do persist into heaven, and, and Father Jonathan Tobias, who who I, I quote in there as well. He, he, and he's an Orthodox theologian right now. Um, he, he says the same thing, you know? So, and well, and, and, and you know, cause we, we get uh, the take on, on marriage that, uh, you know, in, in heaven, there is no marriage, right? Where everybody's married to everybody. That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> You know, is that how, I, why does it have to be like that? You know, but also that's another way that marriage is denigrated. When the Bible starts with a wedding and ends with one, right? So is, is marriage, I mean, God is using marriage. I mean, he's pointing to something, I think there is that, there is there is a spiritual truth in in marriage and it's not just that the marriage you know between man's soul and god which is that's part of it but that that same reflection in the relationship of man and woman right that's that's so profoundly important and and i think you can tell you know how as the way this has been uh this image has been tarnished in our especially over the last decade or so right you know i mean it's 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 certainly hard to create a christian marriage you know a mystical marriage uh, because, but we don't really have that many models for it and it's not really encouraged all that often right we don't that it's not um it's there's no one's writes anything about this in in theological context. I can't think of one person outside of Berjaev and uh, Swedenborg. I mean, and but they're kind of outliers, right? Yeah. But no mainstream theologian even touches it. <clears throat> I unfortunately so. Um, thankfully, as you say, Father Tobias has offered some insights in that respect, and Father John Burr, for example has offered that both are forms of martyrdom, which I think is better, and he does a lot of good, but I think your work actually uh, fills in some uh, holes that I think are still in his theology in that respect, especially as it pertains to Eros, and it's a central theological place, which I think is important, because as I read different Greek theologians, say um, Metropolitan John Zazulis, there's this anti-biological 
a notion within them and you see it I think mm -hmm. in John Paul too as well mm -hmm. but I think that what's important about your work and some of these more recent insights is that um, marriage is not only ontos it's talos and the aim of life it's zoe and bios and um, how do you see then those two coming together as distinctly theological building on aristotle and uh, as i think came across in the book but also both in christ and how he's making all things new if that makes sense how oh, eros and caritas how mm -hmm. we, we bring those together yeah well i think i mean it, it goes back to plato right i mean plato you know you know talks about eros you know desire that's it's what draws us out toward the other, right? And it's and for Plato, it's ultimately it's you know all that desire is leads to the ultimate desire, which is the desire for for God, right, or for truth or whatever you want to say, how you want to phrase it. <clears throat> and I mean, well, why else um, are we so enamored with beauty? Right. And I don't just mean the physical beauty of the opposite sex. I mean, you know, there's an eros in uh, right now. I'm looking out in the field across the road from my house and trees are all in color. It's beautiful, you know. And is that not an eros that draws us, right? It draws us to wonder and draws us to, to love the world, right? To love the creation. Um, um, and I, and, and I think, and that's what I mean, gosh, I mean, and, but I think what happens, I don't know, if, I don't think this was the case in Christian culture. If you look in village culture in the Middle Ages or things like this, or through the early modern period, you know, there was a lot of celebration of, of fecundity, you know, whether, you know, in May Day, celebrations or other kinds of things right which is uh, or when they had hand fasting right so which brought people you know which encouraged young people to fall in love right that's the world must be peopled right mm -hmm. um and i think if you look back through through history the theologians they were talking to each other they weren't really uh addressing the peasantry and the peasantry, you know, they they weren't interested in those theological questions about eros or things. They they were actually living it out. They were, you know, it, whether it's through farming. Oh my goodness, talk about eros, right? You know, planting seeds. I mean, it's such an erotic um, activity, you know, or you know breeding animals <laughs> that's getting more erotic well it's not exactly erotic but uh but it, but it, that kind of eros rules the world right Run, makes everything work makes us you know makes us attracted to, to our to our our spouses and that's where the children come from i mean those are all beautiful things but uh but for some reason and this happened in theological circles through the Middle Ages and even earlier, but it even after, especially after the Reformation, the then a kind of guilt or a shame accompanies it, right? Where 
Milton, I mean, I think, I think John Milton was, was trying to figure this out himself. <clears throat> Unfortunately, his wife hated him. But, uh, but John Milton, you know, in, in Paradise Lost, before the fall, you know, Adam and Eve uh, form the conjugal union, but they don't treat each other, they don't look at each other like pieces of meat. But after the fall, they do look at each other like that, which is kind of an interesting point uh, for Milton. But uh, for for a lot of theologians, the, the 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 you know the power of eros is terrifying, and uh, the power it has over people. And plus, people, you know, it's a hard thing to learn how to discipline, which is why um, I think it's the only proper place to harness the energies of eros is in marriage. Um, because, um, <clears throat> and you, well, you've been married for a couple months now, mm -hmm. month, <laughs> you know, I've been married for almost 30 years. Now, my, my experience and understanding of marriage is that if people enter into marriage and are not willing to be changed, it's not gonna work, right? Marriage is, is constant uh, change of both partners. The, the, they, they, they change each other, you know, and, and that was the, the, going over the, the, the long haul of our, of our marriage. That's what I think I learned the most is that, and that's why I use the, in the, in the book, I use the example of the, the ballad Tam Lin, where the, the fairy lover is, she captures him, but he ch he's changing form. First turns into a fire, then he turns into a molten lead then he turns into a wolf then he turns into a bear and then he turns into a lion but he keeps saying well keep holding me because i'm still your husband you know and if you keep holding the person as they're going through their changes you know at last you hold your beloved in your arms right <clears throat> um but but so i mean so it's it's you know there's there's a a, a desire to to contain it right, to not, look, and it's understandable, right, um, there's one school of thought that the reason it's contained, and there were so many taboos attached to it, is because procreation is the, is the, is the property of God, and so when, when human beings participate in procreation, <clears throat> you know, we're touching the things of God, so when you touch the things of God, you're unclean, and you need to be you need to be purified afterwards. Not and of course, there's nothing more holy than the things of God. But we we're not supposed to be able to handle that so well. And I and I think that that's where those prohibitions started. But I think it ended up being well, it's just dirty. You know what I mean? It became uh, a source of scandal and shame, which is not good. Mm -hmm. And um, another facet of your work that I find most helpful is, say, through people like Goethe and um, different poets and the poetics, um, you help to offer an alternative modernity and go beyond modernity as we conceive it oftentimes. Right. Would you like to speak to that and how that differs from just a, um, a return to a past that never was and that kind of idea? <laughs> Um, uh, 
Ask me again. Put it in different words. So um, how do people like Goethe offer an alternative modernity rather than some traditionalists, as it were, who would like to return just to the ah, pre-modern? Or... That makes sense. Well, uh, because this alternative modernity is, is or we could call it a poetic metaphysics too, is actually attentive to what is present before one, right? And there's a temptation to, you know, to try to retrieve something, you know, whether it's through a traditionalist, you know, idiom or whatever it happens to be. But what I think Goethe, and this is Steiner too, um, what they offer, what what Thomas Traherne offers is the ability to attend to what is before one and to see it clearly and see it as it is, right? And this is, so, so Goethe, it's Goethe's phenomenology and it also filters into the phenomenology of, of Husserl and Heidegger who also come to these kinds of religious insights. Uh, because, and for, for Heidegger, it results in care, right? Care for the, for the other, right? Genuine concern, right? And, and it's a kind of knowledge, you know? You, you, you get to that kind of care or knowledge in, in the way that when in, in the Bible where, where Adam knows Eve, Right, so he knows her intimately. I mean, of course, the, the knowing there is implied sexually, but it's not just that. I mean, to know somebody is to to that kind of inner intimacy that you cannot get in other ways. Um, and I think you can. The the poets show us how to have that relationship to the world. You know, Wallace in particular, um, Goethe. Uh, um, even the romantic poets, so um, Henry Vaughan, you see it in him, is they is they offer us uh, a kind of window into the world, and, and in Thomas Return in particular, he offers us a way of seeing. How he offers us instruction in in sight, in vision. And it's and it's an, and it ends up it's a kind of a mysticism that's not crazy, you know, because there are certain part kinds of mysticism just sound you know, it's crazy stuff, you know, <laughs> it's so emotionally. If you ever read the the mysticism of uh, Marjorie Kemp, it's insane. Uh, just it's unhinged and not mentally healthy. <laughs> but on the other hand, Traherne has this kind of mysticism where you enter the kingdom as a child again. And it's not complicated by all this uh, emotiveness or hysteria. It's, in, and Eleanor Farton does the same thing. It's entering into the world. And, it, and where you see, you say with God that in the, and it was good, right? Where you see the goodness of the world. Mm, I mean, and um, what is this Harmonia Mundi that you describe in the book, Michael? And what are some of the literary and theological portrayals of this kind of harmony? And how have they helped you live a more flourishing life then? Yeah, the, the harmony of the spheres or the harmony of the world. So 
My favorite example is from uh, Shakespeare's Pericles. Uh, it's a really wonderful play. What happens with Pericles is he, he loses his wife and child at sea. He uh, is just torture. He lives a life of absolute torture after he loses his wife and, and his child. And then he later in the play, he comes to this town where unbeknownst to him, his daughter, who had been sold as a prostitute, has turned everyone to virtue by her goodness and her, her music. And they, they bring her to him because he's, he's like catatonic. He can't even communicate with anybody. He hasn't cut his hair in decades. And uh, what happens is they bring him to her and she looks like her mother. And so he's already kind of um, taken aback. And he hears her story and he realizes this is his daughter. And as he's and he's coming to this realization, it's really if you ever see the play, it's not a dry eye in the house when this happens. But then he hears the, the harmony of the spheres. He says, List, list, Marina. The harmony of the spheres. No one else can hear it, but he hears it. And the idea, and this this was in the Renaissance, but it had been present, you know, since um, the dream of Scipio, if not certainly earlier that when a soul was in tune with the universe, the soul could hear the harmonies of the spheres because the idea was that um, they had no idea of gravity. So, so they thought that the planets traveled on crystalline spheres. And if you have these crystalline spheres, you know, different sizes, they're gonna have different sounds, right? Just pure Pythagoras, right? And they would hear this and it would it not only would it bring healing, but it would show that that the soul was at at at, at peace and in, in harmony with the universe and with God. You know, so it's I think it's a beautiful image. You know, and, and it's in in in, the, in that play it, it it accompanies his restoration to both his daughter and his wife. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you, Michael. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the symbolism of honey, the practice of beekeeping and making of mead and how these things uh, can help us to appreciate wisdom and creation? Um, <laughs> I kind of, yeah. Mead shows up a lot in this book. Uh, I was making a lot of mead during the writing of this book and drinking a lot of mead. Um, well, I'm a beekeeper. And if there it's talk about a mysterious uh, activity. The, um, what goes on in that hive is just—it's amazing. I mean, never, I mean, it's—it's it's just impossible to, to see. I mean, to, to fathom how these animals work, you know, and how there's so much intelligence in that hive, and how they know what to do and when to do it, and how quickly they work. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a astounding that uh, the, the, I mean, and, and I think this is speaking of metaphors for our own times, I mean, for all the trouble that the bee colonies are in right now, you know, which shouldn't be like that. 
And of course, it's been ruined by industrial beekeeping, which um, has severely weakened populations of bees. And, this, and people have been keeping bees for thousands and thousands of years. Um, but for me, in, in, in the book, you know, the invention of honey, I mean, it's kind of amazing that uh, so much uh, mythology, you could say, inhabits this in that, that the ancient world, the, the, in, in the ancient world, uh, honey uh, or mead was made before beer because it's super easy to make you ever want to make some it's, it's, there's not much to it i mean you know, basically it's four gallons of of honey and to and one gallon to um no it's one gallon of honey to four gallons of water and yeast that's it then you get you get mead that way and then you can, of course, there are ways to, to flavor it and do other things with it as well. But, you know, and you think about it, you just, with the queen, I mean, it's a very Sophianic uh, society, you know, it's run by the queen. And, uh, and, and they're domesticated animals that we, we have a relationship to. I mean, you have to take care of them. You know, if if, not, if you don't take care of them, they, they don't they don't prosper, and so there's a there's a reciprocal relationship with that as well. And uh, and so when I was writing about that, you know, there's a book uh, and I talk about um, Carl Karenyi's Dionysus, which is a really amazing book, and he's got all these great stories about the invention of honey, and how uh, how uh, the, the the followers of Dionysus, you know, used honey in the, in their their various rituals, and there there was a, there is a I think I wrote about it in there. Um, there's evidence that in the early church there was uh, milk and honey were were part of a kind of a Eucharistic meal. That accompanied somehow the the bread and wine. So if you think bread, wine, milk, and honey, right? That's kind of a cool constellation right there, right? And I, and it, it, and you can't get around um, the agricultural implications of just the Eucharist itself, right? You know, uh, fruit fruit of the vine, the work of human hands, right? So it's not just it's not just from nature; it's something that we have to transform to before God transforms it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's kind of an interesting relationship. Whereas milk and honey, they don't need to be transformed unless you make meat. But but, but they don't they don't need to be transformed. Uh, they, they're in their their pristine state. They kind of. Uh, offer what is what is what is divine there and maybe we, we, it's almost like a, i wouldn't call it a uh, a feminine eucharist but it, there's certainly i mean bees it's honey is made by by the girls <laughs> and so is milk <laughs> right <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting uh complement to the, the, the our eucharistic understanding mm.
Excellent. Thank you, Michael. And then um, just building upon that, then what is the central role of creativity in the Christian life? And how does Berdiaf help us here in particular? Yeah, isn't he? He's something, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, for for Berdiaf, you know, we we uh, our creativity is where we most imitate God, where we come closest to God, and for him, we have you you have we have a, a responsibility to you know you can even say to create the kingdom through our creativity, right? To not in because the, the work of salvation is, is also part of our responsibility, he suggests, right? Um, but it's too bad that, especially in, in Protestant contexts where creativity is, has been treated with suspicion, and, you know, the lure of beauty, right? There's a, in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, for instance, he's really, and even uh, Milton does this as well, well, They'll they'll build up a picture where this beautiful woman is showing up, you know, and so it gets the reader paying attention to the beauties about to happen that someone's going to kiss somebody, and then it comes in, aha, aren't you ashamed of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> so they set you up, you know, um, but but that understanding is foreign to what I'm talking about and what Brajayev is getting at is that we have, you know, in, in how we live our lives is, you know, how do we bring creativity to that? You know, I mean, I think it's an important, important thing with raising children or, you know, how, how you live your life, how you, you go about living. Those are important, important things and, and the ways we can, in which we can bring creativity to that. And I don't just mean, you know, kind of clever artsy kinds of stuff either i mean genuine creativity where and you can and you can tell when you when you do it when the in the in uh Berdiev's book uh, the meaning of the creative act it's a long but one of his most important books one of his first books and it's for him and there's these creative acts don't just happen in the arts they happen in philosophy they happen in marriage, they happen in every every domain you can find. You can make, you can bring the creative act to it because you're participating in in God's work in that way. Mm. And, I, and I think that's it's important, and I it's really kind of driven so much of what I've done through my whole life. I mean, I, I definitely uh, the impetus behind founding Jesus the Imagination is part of that as well. Mm. Yeah. You know? Glory to God. And uh, what is reverie, as you describe it in the book, and how does that lend itself to the good life then, Michael? Yeah, well, that I, there's a couple places where I, I draw on uh, Percy Shelley, for instance, the romantic poet, and, and also uh, Gaston Bachelard. And for both of them, reverie is entering into that kind of state you had as a child. So you can see it also in Thomas Traherne and Eleanor, Eleanor Fargin, where you enter into to reverie where it's kind of contemplation, but it's a it's contemplation that's playful, where you can, you know, where where a child gets lost playing, you know, where you you 
and for me, this happens, um, well, it happens at the farm, but it happens, it happens with reading poetry in particular, where I just get, I just get lost, right? I, I enter into it and I kind of forget where I am. Um, and it also happens with playing music when I, um, don't do it as often as I, as I used to, it was before the pandemic, but when I get together to play music with my friends, you know, well, we'll, we'll get to this place where we're improvising and every, the, and this happens to jazz musicians too, where everything kind of disappears and you forget where you are. And then you come back and you're like, whoa, where, wow, where were we? How did we get there? That's reverie, and, and, and that's really becoming a child again. You know, that's what, and then Thomas Traherne, I think, is always on about how to become this child again. You know, and he, Traherne blames, he says, this is our natural condition, but we've been bred out of it through a horrible education in particular, <laughs> through the ways of the world and a horrible education, right? Which is true. You know, those, those, those are things that, are, and that's what I loved about when I was a Waldorf teacher, for instance, there was still uh, not as much as you, you would think, but there was still um, room for the children to dream into the, the subject matter or to, to enter into reverie in relationship to what they were learning. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's a tool for education that most systems have dropped as, as superfluous, which is, which, is, which is why we are where we are. <laughs> Unfortunately so. And um, I think in line with that, what is it about, say, Eleanor Farson, who you mentioned a few times there, that you most appreciate? And um, I think also you suggest that she taps into that er erotic uh, agapeic well and uh, uses this interest in beautiful bridal mysticism. Can you speak mm -hmm. to that? Um, she, you know, she is kind of fascinating. I, I, I first encountered her through uh, the Cat Stevens song, Morning is Broken, yeah. which she wrote the lyrics for and he adopted. And and changed the music. I, it was in the, in the Anglican hymnal from the 1920s or 30s, I think. And she's kind of fascinating because she was writing all these hymns for the Anglican hymnal and she wasn't even a Christian. <laughs> she even wrote a book on 10 saints. Uh, well, I wasn't a Christian. She didn't become a Christian until she was 70 when she entered the Catholic church. Um, but she's the most intuitive Christian ever. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, her her like her one book, Trees, extraordinary book, um, where she. I mean, you can see in her where she she develops this this capacity for reverie, for entering into dialogue with a tree, with nature, or with with uh, even with the products of her imagination and. It offers so much um, joy in, um, in uh, I guess, joy and insight into the the, uh, the being of Christ. Because I, I call it in the book, Eleanor Fargin and the Singing God. Because for her, Jesus sings and dances, right? Just like the morning has broken, right? Like the first morning, right? 
it's and that she and she she captures that in she doesn't have room for the for a sour faced Jesus, you know. Her, she won, you know. Her, her Jesus is the is the Lord of the dance, you know, and which is refreshing, right? And, and that's which is this is a this is a Jesus children could relate to, right? Mm -hmm. Suffer the little children to come to me. They're not gonna. Children aren't drawn to sour pusses, right? To people who are depressed. I mean, because often, you know, Jesus depicted as the, the man of, of sorrows, right? Right. But that's not going to draw children. Yeah. You know, and, and, and what kind of, what kind of God um, do you want your children to know? <laughs> you yeah. know? Excellent. Thank you, Michael. And um, another element of the book that I really loved, found fascinating, was the illustrations of the eyes and wonderful artwork. And uh, you go through the symbolic role of the eye in, I think, Treherne's work. Or, or yeah. I want to ask you about that and how that speaks to this uh, notion of the beatific vision then, and what that means. Oh, well, Treherne, uh, one of... of He's got running uh, metaphors to use. Is one is becoming a child again, uh, but the other one is the eye, and he and he plays on the homophone with I meaning myself, right? With I meaning the thing that enters because the I is the thing through which the world enters into the child, into anybody, right? So it enters into us through the I. And it illuminates my eye, right? So, so he wants to become all I. And it's not. And and I finally concluded that it's not just I and optic uh, organ, but it's also I as an affirmation, as in yes, right? That he's doing. But so I have a lot. Um, I think five or six illustrations from Jakob Burma. Who is written? If you look at his illustrations, but no, but no, to his books by Dionysus Freyer, this German uh, printmaker, and they're just amazing with all these crazy eyes all over the place and wings and the eye of God and wings of you know the eyes of seraphim, and so so Burma was into this, um, and. He was he was into it, and so were the Philadelphians, and I, in particular, Jane Led, and John Portage, who also drew on this image of the Eye of God in, in their work, and, and I re reproduced a couple of those in the book as well. Um, and I'm pretty sure. I mean, I I gave a lecture almost exactly a year ago at uh, Hillsdale College here in Michigan on Jakob Burma and the metaphysical poets where I talked about this. And it's interesting, um, in the earlier metaphysical poets, John Donne and George Herbert, for instance, they existed before Jakob Burma was published in England. And so he didn't influence the way they thought. But after he, he was published, he started being published in the late um, mid-1620s. And Traherne and Burma, or Traherne and Vaughn, obviously read 
um, what was going on in Jakob Burma's work. And I think it changed the way they thought about, about theology. And this idea of the I shows up in both of them and how, how you see the, the, the creation and see, and see things through it uh, um, and how God is revealed through the creation, which is a basic sociological insight, right? You know, that all things shining again, that something shines through the world. And, and, that's, and that's our real home. That's where we are to return to. Excellent. And what is then the role of the green man and the place of fairies in this great tradition? What have we lost maybe? And how might we come back to this appreciation? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it's, you know, David Bentley Hart talks a lot about this stuff too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and David just thinks it's a horrible sign of modernity that people have, have uh, think they're too clever that to believe that fairies of the green man exist. Right. Now I tell a story in, in, the, in the book that about my daughter when she was little, where my wife was raking leaves in our, in our little yard in suburban Detroit at the time. <clears throat> and my, my daughter said, mom, stop, those people. And there were these, she said she saw these people on, on the ground and she didn't want them to get hurt by the rake. My wife didn't see them. And years later, we were at Thanksgiving or something and I would mention it to the kids. Remember that, May? And she said, yep. They were there. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but they were there. I didn't want mom to hurt them, you know. So, and, and I, that's an example of, you know, being taking on the eyes of a child, you know. And my grandfather, I mentioned him in that in that chapter as well. He he told told the stories about about the fairies all the time when we were kids, and uh, and I, I also saw the green man one time. Even, I even though I tried to tell myself I didn't until years later, I realized I really did. Um, and I, and, but the think of, and I've talked about this with students before, right? You know, they all say, well, it's crazy. Nobody believes it. But every culture on earth has some version of that, right? Every single one. And it's only for the, for the last 150, 200 years where we pretend that it's, it's not the case. Um, doesn't make any sense, right? You know, um, have we learned to not see them? You know, it, you know <laughs> I, I, another thing I propose, maybe they're allergic to plastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is, but, uh, but it's, you know, there we have, how many testimonies over how many centuries of people seeing into these invisible worlds, you know? And, and I was, it was really, you know, relieved that David Hart and uh, John Milbank also, also buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, and you're in good company there, Michael. And um, <laughs> absolutely. How do you then uh, balance this pagan revelry that you talk about in the book? And Christian Joy, and then who are some of the leading lights getting the way in that respect? And indeed, what are some of the features that separate the real deal from the fake and the superficial, as you talk about with the kind of Celtic mythology and stuff like that? Um, yeah, I mean, 
Well, you know, I think our 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 times, you know, our uh, we're victims of cosplay, right? So, <laughs> and that's the temptation for people in whatever they happen to do is to just act the role, right? To, to get, get the right outfit, get the right costume, and put it on, mm-hmm. and you act you pretend you're this or that like distributors you know i've been ripping on distributors for years the ones who wear tweed and drink highballs and smoke pipes right and think they're c.s lewis or whatever um that's not gonna get it just like and i in this book i talk about you know the the fairy believer cosplay people who get all the scarves and you know they get the they get the whole thumb ring deals (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) crystals or whatever you know um but you know i don't know if you know anybody at home who who says they see they've seen fairies but they're probably you know people who wear wear wellingtons and and walk around with they get muddy all the time and they're not exactly cosplayers right they're too busy to be cosplayers um that's and and i think that the temptation to act as a persona is is kind of destroys any authenticity you could have in in those realms um and and i you know same thing and it's it's it happens in christian circles you know people um, perform the role that they think they're supposed to play right they think it, it it and almost like it's a, it supports their brand, right? So I'm the I'm an Orthodox person, so I got my Facebook page has, has a, you know, a picture of whatever saint, you know what I mean? So you kind of do that thing. But how can how can we enter into an authentic relationship with the world that's not uh, encumbered by those? kinds of almost desperate gestures right so how can we do that um it's a good question you know and i and i for me it all comes down to you know kind of a pragmatic presence to the world you know you know and 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 not disbelieving people you know, because you, because of your your reflex your reflective uh, response into scientism or something. Mm. You know, and um, something that I thought was really impressive about the book was how you described the internet and its hegemony as this kind of perverse furry other world. Would you like to describe that a little bit and how that fits with what you're saying there? Yeah. So we, we so. If we talk, say, the realm of the fairies, wherever they have, whatever that realm happens to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who I, I would guess are pretty attentive to it. I, I, I quoted in the book from the really kind of magisterial study from the early 1900s, the Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries by W.I. Evans Wentz, which was written as his doctoral dissertation at Oxford you know, which I don't think you get away with that now, but um, any, any one of the people he inter- interviews there was A.E., George, George Russell, um, who apparently 
could see theories pretty easily. Um, Oh, where, where was I going with this? Where, where was the question again? <laughs> How uh, the internet serves is this kind oh, the of internet, yeah. or the other world. So, so, so with that realm, there are people who I think enter into nature and, and discover a world beyond there. And that, that what doesn't necessarily need to be only fairies. I mean, it could be uh, people like Sergei Bulgakov who experienced God shining through nature or through art or Sophia you want to say um but with the internet the danger is you know we say oh I don't believe that it's an it's a world that doesn't exist well the internet is a world that doesn't exist it really doesn't exist mm. right there it has no substance it has no material substance it it it's talk about a magical world but it has all the appearances of substance um, and and plus and like I like I mentioned earlier with with the cosplayers right then it, it kind of begs that that kind of participation the internet does you know so and, and it's so easy to get lost in, in that place that doesn't really exist so it's like it's like a fairy fair it's a anti fairy other world or you know or a gnostic kind of alternate universe. And I think with, with people and with the transhumanist movement, right? They're trying to turn that into a reality where people could be permanently trapped in that, that realm. Seriously, I mean, that's frightening, but I, I, that's, that's diabolical, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. And um, something that you talk about a lot later in the book is this symbolism of the grail. I want to ask you about uh, what you find most fascinating about the symbolism of the grail and what are some of the key takeaways then for the church that we might understand? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a puzzle. I mean, this, this is something that's puzzled people for, for centuries. And I think, well, I think what happens, this we're talking, we're just talking, is that in one way, people, uh, since the, the grail is never clearly defined, what happens is then people are able to project their own idolatrous perceptions onto the grail, right? Onto, what, onto the space that that holds, a glittering generality, right? It can mean anything. Um, which, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, and, and I love the grail literature. I mean, I really do. I'm not too crazy about Galahad. Um, he's just too perfect, right? You know, <laughs> I just can't relate to him, but I can relate to Parsifal because it's grew up from the beginning. Yeah, this guy, this is my guy right here. Um, and I mean, and there are so many iterations of that story in attempts to connect it to something holy. And I think, and I like, I mean, I like the idea of the grail as the chalice that caught the blood of Christ, right? But I think it's a, there's a danger to, to getting uh, too stuck on one or another um, understanding of what you think the grail is, though I, uh, though I think that the healthiest one is the one 
that Bulgakov comes to of the, the earth itself being the Holy Grail because it received the blood of Christ on Golgotha, right? And I think he probably at least had a little bit of inspiration from Rudolf Steiner there because that was a key insight of Steiner's as well. And um, Bulgakov, I don't think he ever saw Steiner speak, but his best friend Berjayev did. So I'm sure he, he, they had discussions about Steiner's work, um, I have no doubt. Um, and, and I mean, so, I mean, so that's what's kind of interesting to me about, about the grail. In fact, the next semester I'm teaching a course on love and romanticism and one of the things I'm, I'm going to show the students is part of the 1982 film version of Parseval, which by uh, Hans, Hans, what's his name, von Cyberberg, and Hans Jürgen von Cyberberg. And it's crazy. Uh, it is because it's got puppetry, it's got masks, it's just, it's, it's a feast for the senses and for the eyes. Um, but it's very romantic in that, you know, Wagner, when Wagner wrote it, it's like kind of the, the, the apotheosis of romanticism, right? Where, where his, in, in fact, that's, Nietzsche thought he sold out because, by becoming a Christian at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, it, and, it's, and it's an interesting take, it's, I mean, on what the, what the grail is. But what's interesting to me is to let it have play or ha have um, plasticity that you don't get stuck on that concept because I think we it's that I, I think is a danger um, for us in any uh, aspect of our lives is to, to, to let it get it's like we talk about with marriage right mm -hmm. if you try to hold it out of that one you hold the beloved is this one image it's not going to work you have to let her let it breathe and live and change. Um, and by, by, by all those changes and transformations, that's where the stability is, right? Which is kind of ironic, but I think it's the same thing with the grail. But I also think it's a, it's a um, uh, the, in, in the Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory with the death of Arthur, or the, the once and future king, right? Um, it's kind of, I, I think, of the church in, in those terms, like going back to what we talked about in the beginning, is that the once and future church, because um, Mallory's text is just, it's, in a way, it's, it's a great read, it's wonderful, but it's um, permeated by melancholy by doom it's an apocalypse right it's the end is coming and even the holy grail can't save anybody in mallory right and it doesn't save anybody in uh in tennyson's uh idols of the king it doesn't save anybody um so what what's and there's no salvation there's only the promise of salvation at the end of mallory's book but i think what happens with King Arthur after he's grievously wounded that, uh, and, he, and he's taken to the Isle of Avalon by three queens, right? To be healed of his wounds. And I think to me, that's 
that's a sophianic image of the of the church where it is right now that it needs you know that it it's being taken on a barge to the island of avalon to be healed by by the feminine and I, you know that's right that's where i kind of am with that thank you michael and um, in a later chapter, The Rosary of the Philosopher, it feels really candid and quite meditative. Well, I was wondering what moved you to include that essay and what do you hope that readers will appreciate in sharing a little of your perspective then? Yeah, that one. Well, that I my original plan was to write a, actually a more standard chapter on the rosary. Mm-hmm. But then I, <laughs> then I, I, it was, gosh, maybe it was right around Easter this year, that uh, I, I decided I would write it as a lyric, a, a lyric essay or a prose poem. And I don't know if you noticed, but basically it, it's, uh, it's five decades. And so I have various things I repeat and various uh, images I, I, I bring in. So I, I took things from uh, a gardening encyclopedia on the rose. In fact, there's a, one part about, in fact, I have it right here, if I can find it. Um, let's see if I can see where I was. Um, uh, th- this was actually, this wasn't from a gardening encyclopedia. The eggs of the bee are perfectly round, very small, being about only about one eighth of a line in diameter. In the ducts of the ovarium, they are arranged together in the form of a rosary, which when I found that, I was like, whoa, that's really <laughs> cool. So it's, it combines, you know, things from beekeeping manuals and wrote you know a rose uh what do you call it a horticulture encyclopedia but also there's there's autobiographical elements in there mostly about my wife and our relationship going over 30 years now um and so i and and i i really had a lot of fun putting that together and i gave it to my wife as an easter present i think um it also has elements from uh the legend of Saint Dominic and the discovery of the rosary, and you know, all kinds of things mixed up that I was trying to create, a, I guess, a contemplative um, meditation on the rosary. That's that's not the rosary, but uses the rosary as the model. You know, it's, it's kind of a template. So, so I don't, I don't know if I was successful, but it was fun to write. <laughs> Fantastic! Yeah, thank you, Michael. And um, I want to ask you also what a, a bit more about Berdaev and what's the place of eschatology in Berdaev and this kind of going back and forth between Eden and the eschaton and how does that free us then from more worldly timescales and some of our cruder concerns that we might live with? Yeah, well, the, the chapter on Berdaev, uh, um, I was originally invited to write that for a Russian journal I'm like you're asking an American to write about a Russian philosopher, <laughs> so uh, all right, but uh, and I, you know, I'll take the challenge, right? And and I've 
been really interested in, in Berjaev since I was a college student. Um, and what's interesting in him is his originality, right? His daring, uh, his daring to uh, challenge uh, church authority, you know, or church church authorities, I should say. Um, but he's also, he, he, he's got this profound prophetic streak, you know, and he's really attentive to uh, the last thing is the eschaton and and to the role and to the failure of christianity to live up to its mission which is a, a big part of that chapter is his railing against the failures of the church in every domain to be christian you know and he's not picking on the roman church or the orthodox church he's including everybody you know and he and 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 there, to me, he's really super inspirational in that he's, he doesn't flinch from saying what's difficult to say about, I mean, you know, especially, you know, you get a lot of people right now in, in what we call the post-Christian era, right? Is, um, well, it happened because of this, because of secularization. It's not my fault. It was the secularization, right? And he's like, no, it happened because you failed. That's why it happened, right? Yeah, if the church failed, that's why it happened. Don't make excuses about, about secularism. If we had been Christian in the first place, this wouldn't have happened. It's our fault that there is such a thing that, that as a non-Christian, right? Well, I really couldn't do it. I was busy at work or whatever, right? And that's that's what I think he offers us. And and he, you know, he points how does he put it <clears throat> um, toward the end here. The future depends upon our will and upon our spiritual efforts. This must be said about the future of the entire world. The part to be played by Christianity will certainly be enormous on condition that it is old that its old fictitious forms are left behind and that its prophetic aspect is revealed as the source of a different attitude toward this, the social problem. Yeah. Boom, right? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I mean, he's, he just, he's right too, yeah. you know, Excellent. he's right. And um, what are some of the distinctives of his philosophical sociology then michael and what would the new middle ages as he describes it look like or for yourself or for Badev? um well for him in, in his ideas about sophia change but i mean especially in his earlier work he was explicitly sophiological right and and where he, and he calls for let me see if we can find it. He says, Sophia moves all true philosophy. At the summit of philosophic, con philosophic consciousness, Sophia enters man. So for him, that's why he starts uh, the, the meaning of the creative act with, with, with philosophy as creative act, is that for him, it, a, a disordered thinking results in a disordered uh, world, right? And for the Sophianic, 
to, for us to participate in the Sophianic through our thinking and through our imagination and will is, um, is how that, that opens, right? And that's, and that's where I think the, the source of his fearlessness is. And if I have it, fear, fearlessness, that's where I get it too, is that um, this ability, or this gift, which I think anybody can attain this gift through the proper uh, dispensation toward thinking. Uh, I think this is why Steiner, I think Steiner does it as well. Um, is, is, is that proper disposition toward, toward thinking and toward uh, honestly seeing that doesn't get, um, this is what you don't see in, in Burjaib, he doesn't get um, checked in his uh, critique of the church because he's not a, he's not a priest, right? Bulgakov is in many ways a superior intellect, even Berdyaev, they were close friends, but Bulgakov was a priest and, and he, he was constantly dealing with archbishops and, and metropolitans breathing down his neck about his ideas, right? So he, there's a kind of self-censorship that happens there, even though he doesn't always self-censor. Berdyaev never self-censors and he doesn't even care if he's wrong, right? Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's and I, and I think he would say that where so many things have gone wrong with Christianity has been because of power structures, you know, mostly bishops, but not only power structures compromise, you know, tainting the message. Like you know, like like the earlier one you mentioned Saint Francis before the cardinals, right? No one can live by that. It's the gospel. Oh, who are you kidding? too hard pick something easier right so i and i think that's that's what happens you know people get into you know cushy jobs cushy cushy government job cushy ecclesial job you know you got to protect yeah i work hard for this i'm not gonna let, let go of this now yeah. right and and Virjaev was one of the you know one of the great figures in not buying that for a second Mm, brilliant. And how does his um, central emphasis on theosis then help steer us away from the temptations and lesser gains of those um, maybe more banal existences that you're hinting at there or the kind of dominant technocratic order? Um, well, for him, it's, a, it's, a, it's an open question still, right? I mean, he believes in theosis, but on the other hand, things don't look too good, do they? Mm. Right? And he was writing a lot of that in the aftermath and during World War II, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so he's not, he's, he knows he has to be hopeful because all things are possible through Christ, right? But on the other hand, it doesn't look too good, you know? So there's a kind of tension there for him, in him, that tension. And I, um, and I think, you know, for him, he was, you know, even back in the 1930s, he was really concerned about the encroaching technocracy, right? Back then, that's even before television, right? Mm -hmm. um, certainly, we have a lot to be worried about right now. We're in a, now we're in a post-Christian era for sure. Um, 
I mean, I still have have faith in, in, in the transformative power of the kingdom, but it doesn't look good. Doesn't look good. Um, you know, I was thinking with, you know, the pressure that all over the world, you know, of the, the technocracy coming toward, you know, will there be uh, digital passports and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, all those things that are being proposed right now seem to be bad news for the sociology business. <laughs> they really just, I mean, I'm thinking, wow, you know, it's going to be really challenging to, to do what I, not, I shouldn't say to do what I do, but, you know, to run the farm, I think I'll still, we'll still, we could live outside of that, that world for much more comfortably than, than most people. Um, but, you know, when all that stuff's going on, and I think, I think sociology offers an antidote to that, um, but nobody's really interested in sociology. <laughs> it's not really, it's people, certainly in the church. I was hopeful for a minute there when uh, Pope Francis wrote Laudato Si, but he's proved to be a tremendous disappointment. Uh, I, I heard, I don't know, I haven't been able to check it out. I heard there, the, the Vatican, of all places, just hosted uh, a conference on transhumanism and the World Economic Forum. So, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what's, where, where things will go. I mean, I, you know, when I, even when I wrote the, the Submerged Reality, you know, I, the last part, last sentence was that, you know, sociology is the future of Christianity. Because if it's not, while well, we have this technocracy, um and that's not good i mean that's that's inhuman it's it's anti-human mm -hmm. and i think that that's where it seems that's where it seems most people are headed and i think you know no i don't have a lot of readers in my books um though reader uh, the readers i do have seem to be pretty enthusiastic you know people people who get it seem to really get it uh, and so it gives them hope, gives me hope, it gives them hope. <laughs> but I, you know, I don't know. I don't, uh, the world, the world rejects such a worldview. You know, Thank so, you. Thank you so much for playing your part anyway, Michael. And yeah. you, you gave me hope and I appreciate your, your book. I appreciate your time and our conversations that we've had together. And I, I hope God continues to bless you with your work and your, your life over there in Michigan. And um, I want to ask you next, if I may, just before we go then for this evening, is there anything else that you're working on now or that you feel the passion to do in the future that you'd like to share? No. <laughs> I was, my plan was to work on a book of poetry which I probably will start, but I've been, I've been for the last month or so, you know, we, we've had to finish up a lot of jobs on the, on the farm, which are, they're just about finished now. So, and I haven't thought about bigger, bigger projects yet, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll, we'll see where it goes. Hmm. And then uh, where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work then, Michael? Well, I'm just, Check in with my website, Alan, the Center for Sociological Studies.com. And 
I actually have been a little slow. I haven't posted anything for a couple of weeks, which is, uh, which is why I've been so busy. Um, but I, but I should get back into the saddle very soon. Fantastic. Thanks again, Michael, and God bless you. Thank you, Mark. Nobody can stop me. I'm going there. Don't you want?